from the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia. This is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. If you have a a so-called job that uh, you learn in five minutes and you have to do it for 20 years, you go crazy, you know? You, You know, many of these jobs you really can only do if you're stoned. You know, we need jobs that are demanding enough so that uh, they can't be done uh, under intoxication. Welcome back to Circle of Willis. I'm your host, Jim Cohn. And I'm the trusty producer, Sage Tangway. (laughs) And that was the voice of our guest, Peter Sterling, neuroscientist and swell guy at the University of Pennsylvania. Last episode... We learned about allostasis and how the body actually changes a lot of little things, temperature, blood pressure, waste processing, in order to stay stable within different scenarios or environments. If you haven't already heard that episode, please stop here and go back and check that one out first. We left off just as Jim and Peter were starting to broach some of the larger personal and societal implications of this science, particularly dopamine and how we get it. Now, dopamine is one of the more commonly known neurotransmitters. As someone who is not a biologist or a neuroscientist, I mostly hear people reference dopamine as something that helps us be happy. But clearly it does a lot more than that. Maybe I'm opening a can of bilateral worms here, but could you tell (laughs) us a little bit more about dopamine? Yeah, well, dopamine is part of one of the oldest strategies in terrestrial biology. It's really about learning. It's about tagging things that are important in the environment that you want and then using those tags to find it again. And it's really that simple. It turns out, one, that it feels kind of nice to find a thing that you want. Therefore, you seek that thing again because it feels nice again and you want to feel nice. Now, that's an anthropomorphized way to understand those bilateral worms. But the point is that dopamine is a method of sensitizing your brain to stimuli that you need to survive. Gotcha. And if that's very abstract... That's because that's covering a lot of ground, (laughs) right? Right. That can be a lot of different things to a lot of different kinds of animals. Ultimately, at the same time, it's sort of the same thing to all of those animals. Right. One of the ways to understand dopamine and its role in learning is that its release is stimulated by unpredicted positive things, by, by surprises that are like happy surprises. If surprises are what give us the good stuff, this leads us to a very important question that you asked, Peter. Let's take a listen. Why do we try so hard to make life easier, to surround ourselves with creature comforts? I mean, if hearing you talk, I'm thinking about my I'm thinking about electric blankets. Yeah. Right. I put on an electric blanket, turn on the electric little knob and all of a sudden there is no weather. Yeah. Right, you know, I am right. I am fine, perfect, whatever it is. Well, no, um, you're not. Okay. okay. And um, so uh, here, another literary reference uh, that I like and have requoted many times is from uh, Herman Melville's uh, Moby Dick. Uh, oh, there's a beginning, early chapter in which... Quick, quick. Yeah, in which uh, Ishmael, who's the main character, is uh, sharing a room with this uh, South Polynesian character, Queequeg, and it's cold. They're in they're in uh, uh, Nantucket, and it's December, and it's cold as hell. And they're in this this room, and they're they're very cold. But there's a fire in the room, and so there's one spot on their nose that that stays warm you know so melville says through his character that you know a a, a fire if you have a fire in your sleeping quarters that can keep the room warm he says this is a for rich people um, but it's it's really uh it's a disaster a rich a rich person can never really feel warm because to feel real warmth some part of you has to be cold the tip of your nose or your forehead or something has to be cold. So it's it's by contrast that yeah. we 
we have these things. So the problem is that all these creature comforts that we have, we, we, we never wonder where we're going to get dinner. We just go to the supermarket and pick it off the shelves. Or we, we, don't, we don't wonder where will we find a dry cave or where will we find a, a warm fire. We know. We come in, we switch on the thermostat, or it's automatically switched on now. We're uh, rarely uncomfortable, rarely in doubt uh, if, if we have uh, sufficient money uh, where we're going to find food. And so why, why does this leave us unhappy? Uh, why, or why are we unhappy in the face of all of this comfort? And, and that is, a, I think, a very important question. So, so my answer is that the nerve cells that release dopamine are part of a circuit that releases dopamine when they encounter a surprise, a positive, unpredicted surprise, reward prediction error. The same neurons, when we encounter something that is predicted, don't fire. So they're looking for surprise. They're not looking for comfort that is expected. In former days when we lived... uh, Without supermarkets, without central heating, without cars to drive us everywhere, we, we, we had to make a lot of effort for things. And so when we encountered something good, something to reduce our effort, something to reduce our discomfort, uh, to reduce our hunger, these were big deals. And, and that's what gave us a lot of pleasure. Now, uh, we have all this convenience, um, but the convenience does not s- supply the signal the dopamine signal that we need. And we, 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 it doesn't have to be huge. It has to come sort of randomly multiple times a day. We don't store, we can store fat, we can store energy, we can store heat, but we can't store this signal because it's meant to be an, in, an intermittent pulse. Okay, So we get a pulse of satisfaction, but soon we're not satisfied. And then we get another pulse. And you just need a few during the day to keep you going. And, and you know, um, Kat asked me the other night, what is boredom? And I've been thinking about that. And I think it, it maybe an answer is that um, it's moments in which we really are between uh, pulses. And that's what makes us restless. And when we say, oh, I'm bored, it's because we're not engaged in something that has the potential to, to give us a little hit, you know, of, of, of mean. So what happens um, when we are completely comfortable, where we, we're, not, we're, we're, we're searching for, for a hit, but, but everything is predicted, and so we're not getting our little pulse of dopamine. So what do we do? Well, we have to find something that is unpredicted, that is positive. So we, we so eat some food. Well, the food is not surprise. You just pick it up off the sto- out of the store or anywhere else. The surprise then can be if it's sweeter or fattier and richer. Okay, and so uh, yeah, so we get uh, a little hit of dopamine from a from a McDonald's. You know, it's a very popular thing to do. Go to McDonald's, and so that's fine. You start out and you have a, a Mac, but then. You expect it. If you go into McDonald's you expect, and you get this Mac, well, that's predicted. It's not that big, not much fun. You don't get that much dopamine. So you go to a Big Mac. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. And then pretty soon, you know, you go to the Big Mac, and then that's predicted. And so what do you got? You got a Whopper, okay? And, uh, I mean, I think that can stand. We could go on, and, and you know, most of American... Uh, food industry is based on this concept of of appealing to people's sense of everything is predicted by coming up with some big new whopping surprise and it's richer and richer and that's why the country is getting fatter and fatter you know i mean it seems like there are a couple of possibilities really one is that everything's predictable and we're not getting our pulses of dopamine that way Another is everything is too hard and I can't, no matter how much I try to get the, the ordinary pulse, I can't satisfy it. You know, this is maybe people living in poverty. So, so you know, one of the things that hearing you talk, I'm trying to reconcile, you know, uh, hardship 
yes. with boredom, right. you know, um, because, right. you know, both require these pulses, right? Right. Um, but neither of them are getting, getting, really getting right. them. Right. Um, right. In either case, it seems right. like the Whopper is going to be helpful. <laughs> but it's only uh, temporarily helpful. The Whopper and, and rich food gives you these big surges of dopamine, okay? Drugs do the same thing. Um, in fact, you can show that the, the response to, uh, to food and, and heroin and cocaine has the same sort of time course. We are looking for a hit and we can't, of dopamine, and we're not getting it. One of the things we can do is to, uh, there's a whole variety of drugs that actually act ver- directly on, on, the, on the dopamine system to release large quantities of dopamine. So uh, alcohol releases dopamine, uh, cigarettes and nicotine releases dopamine, cocaine and uh, heroin by various circuits uh, do something similar. And they all act to raise the level of dopamine in our uh, certain regions of the brain. And that is very effective f- for uh, raising your mood and making you feel, oh, you know, you get a, a big surge of dopamine. And it can be, uh, can be you know, cr- provide a lot of pleasure and satisfaction and so on. But uh, then the brain adapts to it. And so it yeah. turns down its circuit, and then you need more. You met my grad student, Marlene. She did a study looking at individuals who grew up in these sort of low-income areas around Charlottesville. Often m- much of the sample is African-American, low-income. So adding stress to stress. And she found that, on the one hand, they showed greater responsiveness to a monetary incentive queue where it showed them they would get, they would want some money in the nucleus accumbens. So, mm-hmm. you know, where you've got a lot of dopaminergic sure. activity sure. learning, not surprisingly, along with more f- activation in response to those than people who were from higher SES, they had larger nuclei structurally. Mm-hmm. They had more uh, gray matter in wow. their, in their wow. nucleus accumbens. Yeah. So one of the things that, I think of I think of allostasis applied here on different time scales. Sure, you know, like building the muscle, like you were saying exactly. earlier. Yeah. there's a sense in which people who you know we need to re- reproduce the study. We need to you know it's preliminary, but it looks like maybe people from uh, hard hardship in their childhoods are more sensitive to potential hmm. rewards hmm. and. I don't know what that, yeah. what kind of consequences that would be, but it all goes back to that again. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, one thing for sure is that the brain, all of the brain, is responsive to exercise, just the way muscle is. You you yeah. use you use it, and things grow. I mean, yeah. if you a violinist uh, who practices, you know, many hours a day, their the areas of their brain that controls their finger fingering uh, enlarges. You know, and uh, yeah. Uh, and this same thing is true for you know taxi drivers who in London who have to memorize the whole map street map of London uh, the area of their brain right. in, uh, enlarges too and, and at the expense of other areas that have to shrink because the skull is full and then when they retire and they're no longer exercising that map running that map it goes back to where it was. And their old uh, other parts of the brain that had shrunk down grow back, and, and they regain certain skulls. So huh. there is a, a trade-off here, again, uh, in the brain. Light question now. How do we restructure society to, <laughs> to give us all the optimal uh, uh, frequency and amount of dopaminergic pulses? I could take a crack at that. I mean, it's a very big question, of course. Well, I think from first principles, what you need are activities that contain a, a lot of uh, uh, unpredicted positive elements. So schooling for children should not be sitting 35 kids in a classroom looking straight ahead at the teacher. Uh, they should be uh, all arranged to be exploring. Yeah. And, and the things, because dopamine uh is our reward when we get something un- unpredicted, we tend to practice the things we're good at because that gives us 
a little edge. So if, we, if we're pretty good at learning music, um, we get rewarded. Our brain is rewarded for that, so we practice. So I think that what, one thing is that children have to be allowed to find their the, the things they're best at and to practice them because that is the most re- going to be the most rewarding for th- thing for them. And, and that's the way our earlier societies uh, did so well because we had you know a hunter, a healer, a navigator, a musician, and a, an artist, and so on. So um, th- that I think is a core. Uh, thing that would would help a lot, and then beyond childhood, we need activities that uh, we can continue to uh, to grow and improve on. And uh, you know, that's, that's why artists and writers and musicians, uh, I think, th- they can keep working, and scientists keep working at your craft, keep get, making it a little better, keep learning stuff, and. What we know about hunter-gatherers is that when they're children and adolescents, they don't do anything. When when they get to be about 20, they join the adult uh, hunters and gatherers, and they begin to learn their trade. And you think, well, uh, you know, you go out into the wilderness, and you just pick up stuff, and you get a little, shoot an animal or something. There's nothing to it. But in fact, their productivity increases or grows over 25 years, from 20 to 45. And so that makes you realize that hunting and gathering is really a career. You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, uh, and then once you've learned your career, you know, when you're up, you know, they're like 50, um, <laughs> y- you can keep going for a long time. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't go away. But the point is that you've, those 25 years, you're not just, Stamping, you know, stamping a paper, scanning a barcode. If you have a, a so-called job that uh, you learn in five minutes and you have to do it for twenty years, you go crazy. You know, you you know, many of these jobs you really can only do if you're stoned. You know, and so that I think is a, you know, we need jobs that are demanding enough so that uh, they can't be done uh, under intoxication. Yeah. There's so many intersecting elements here the big mac is cheap and easy you don't have to make it um so it's it's predictable in that sense it provides uh, a nice fat literally uh dose of sugar and salt and and fat for you to to have you know a bonanza on that front it doesn't contain a lot of nutrition otherwise so you know you might feel like you continually need to eat more stuff. So maybe another Big Mac. Um, we don't have time. We don't have time in our typical lives. Certainly if I'm a working all day at one job and then having a second job in the evening, I might only have time to eat a Big Mac while I'm racing from one job to the other. If you're going to cook a meal, a nutritious meal, you need to get the stuff, prepare the stuff, make the meal. You know, it takes it can take hours, and we don't have that kind of kind of life. Well, we should. I mean, we should have time for those things. And and as we where we evolved uh, as foragers in small communities, um, there was quite a lot of free time and uh, for hanging around the fire, telling stories. We know that uh, early cultures, and practically the first thing that humans did as they migrated is they found a cave, and the first thing they did when they moved into a cave was paint it. You know, <laughs> there are these cave paintings all over the world. Yeah. The famous ones uh, are in, in France, these Lascaux caves. Yeah. They're 11,000 11, 11, years ago, but the ones in Indonesia that have been found are from 43,000 years ago. 40,000 years ago. So that was very shortly after we left Africa. So this is this group of caves in uh, southern Argentina called uh, Las Cuevas de los Manos, which is on the cover of my book. Yes, all the hands. And what you see, and those were from 11,000 years ago, and so it's very clear that the first uh, indigenous people that came down across the Bering Land Ridge, down North America, down across the Panamanian Isthmus, to the tip of southern Argentina, they got there and said, ah, let's paint. You know, I mean, that's what they did. <laughs> and it's, I think of these, uh, if you see uh, graffiti in subway tunnels and so on, 
uh, they're often these hens. Yeah. And it, I, I think that there is a um, sort of a Jungian archetype somehow that uh, human beings, when they see a tunnel or cave, they paint hands. You know? In my Why We Hold Hands class, yes. all my students ah. make hand prints. Oh, good. And they oh, decorate good. them. Good. And then we superimpose them at the end over ah. the, the cave in Argentina. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, really? <laughs> Just to drive home. Yeah. yeah. This is, they're, they're not doing yeah. something new or weird. That's this right. has been That's going right. on for... That's right. And uh, I think another thing to point out is if you look at those paintings, uh, the Argentinian ones... Uh, and the uh, the, and the uh, the Indonesian ones. You you can rec- in the Indonesian cave paintings of the animals. You can recognize the animals today. They 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 still exist. Yes. So these paintings. You know, if you see these newspaper cartoons, you know, of some caveman with a skin on his and a big club, you know, and looking stupid, and uh, making a stick drawing, you know, uh, of, of a character on the yeah. wall that isn't these these are high quality oh my things. god and and obviously it wasn't just anybody in the community there must have been people with special skill who, who were doing this and to do it of course they couldn't go buy pigment down at the store they had to find ochre or some mineral right. and they grind it up and then they had to get little um bones probably hollow bones of birds and the way they did these, as you, as you of course know, uh, is to uh, put their hand on the on the wall and yeah. blow this yeah. ochre uh, between them. It was just sort of like a stencil. And th- this is a very high level of, of skill. And if you think about it, you realize, well, whoever was doing this, uh, men or women, we don't know, um, and, and spending time preparing the materials, gaining the skills. Um, making the paintings, somebody was feeding them. And uh, because they weren't out hunting and gathering, they were doing this uh, decor- decoration. And what it means is, I, I think of it as the uh, the uh, equivalent of the National Endowment for the Arts. I mean, there was some community support for these kinds of activities. Then the question is, well, why, since we evolved to be have efficient bodies and efficient brains, why did our brain invest in uh, these sorts of skills? I mean, we, we have, for, for music, this is the same thing. We have parts of our brain that are devoted to skillful painting, skillful music, skillful storytelling, skillful uh, uh, all kinds of manner of, of the arts. To have invested so much brain in these act- artistic activities means that it must be very fundamental to our survival as a species. Yeah. And so what is the role? And and I would I include in this what I call sacred practice which isn't just about going to church it's it's about a sort of activities that have a, a, a an emotional content and a spiritual content that draws us together. I think all of these activities uh draw together members of a community and relieve the sorts of tensions that would naturally arise when people are living close together who have big brains and you know and are smart yeah and can cause all kinds of mischief so i i see these artistic activities and what i would call sacred practices which include fairly elaborate uh, sex too i mean yeah. uh if you if you watch animals they they don't when they copulate it's like pretty brief thing and they walk off and shrug their shoulders. Yeah, it's not know. exactly the Kama Sutra. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we've invested a great deal of effort and imagination and time in, 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 in these activities. One of my favorite things about those Indonesian paintings, I mean, some people think that uh, one of them in Indonesia and in Borneo might be the, the oldest so far recorded or known uh, drawings of human figures uh-huh. and what are those human figures doing they're dancing they're very yeah. obviously dancing right they're holding hands and right. dancing and they have these big elaborate right. headdresses on right these are not just f- human figures for some kind of i don't know the the class yeah it's <laughs> it, this is they are doing a thing right and it's That's and right. it's an important thing and they right. look like you can just Honest to God, I look at them, and the art is stylized. Right. It's 
interesting. Right. It's it's important. I think Picasso said in seeing something like this, uh, oh my God, they were doing it way before me. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. Um, and they look joyful. Right, exactly, exactly. So there's this whole variety of, of activities that our brain invests in because it relieves the tensions, it raises the spirits, it uh, and it holds people together and allows them to cooperate, and it's the cooperation in the long run that the species benefits from. Um, I think it's no coincidence that you have this interest not only in sort of how we work, but in prescribing a way for society to be. Um, and it reminds me of how you have been active in trying to shape society to be more just and more in, more enjoyable. Let's that's they're they're right. two sides of the same coin, right? right. right. Um, for most of or all of your life, right? Why, right. why is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> small sure. question. Another sure. small question. Yeah. I specialize. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I would before I go to that all the way back. Um, I would say that my interest in simpler societies, smaller communities, uh, which really are restricted to uh, indigenous groups in various parts of the world, I was drawn to reading about them and to visiting them because I was dissatisfied with my own life. Uh, it seemed too isolating and uh, constricted, and um, I, I was attracted uh, at that time, I was. This is in my you know mid thirties, early mid thirties, uh, by reading a, uh, a quotation of Karl Marx, who said in eighteen forty four, um, when he was twenty five or something, he said, you know, when we we get to the stage of uh, a final stage of communism, where all human antagonisms have gone away and uh, we can sort of uh, enjoy our life. He said, I will hunt in the morning, and I will fish in the afternoon, and I will write criticism in the evening. And I'll never have to be a, a, a fisherman, a hunter, or a writer. I can just do, do all of these things as I want. And this, when I was a young assistant professor struggling, I thought, this is, just sounds wonderful, you know? <laughs> And um, there's a wonderful book, actually, uh, an early anthropology book from the 70s by a woman named Janet Siskind uh, called To Hunt in the Morning. And it was, uh, it was found a reference to... Yes. And so she goes off to, to visit and live with uh, the uh, Shadanahua Indians in the, in the Peruvian Amazon. And uh, she says, a romance of anthropology is to project your unmet needs onto another culture, you know. And so when she was there, she was realizing, oh, she needed the experience of being able to eat the food that she gathered, to wear the clothes that she made, to, you know, uh, to live in proximity to, to the natural world. And this is what she was missing in her life and needed. She also realized that those people, people she was visiting and had also unmet needs that they projected onto her like convenient stuff you got a flashlight there you know you got a you know you have some mod, mod con and they they were very attracted to those so one wants to keep a balance we're we're always looking to the other for what they have that we're missing and i i i during my life have have missed this sort of uh hunt in the morning stuff. And now in retirement, I live on a farm in, in, in the mountains of western Panama. And uh, I mean, to be honest, at this point, we have electricity and we, we actually have internet. It wasn't very good when we started, but it's pretty good now. But I do still have some of the experience of growing, uh, eating what I grow and uh, uh, doing some physical labor on, on the farm. And I'm able to, uh, to write as well. You know, uh, I don't hunt but I, you know, I do eat my neighbor's chicken. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, we have chickens, free-range chickens on the farm and so on. So Gather their eggs. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I did have a good experience when I was in high school working on a small farm in the summers in the Hudson Valley. And, uh, and I enjoyed that 
sensory richness of, of aromas and tastes and textures and physical activity and so on. It's, it, uh, agricultural life has an appeal. If you do it for a living, it's very hard, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Is, so, is hunting in the morning and writing criticism at night scalable to 8 billion people? Uh, okay, so that, that's a very good question. First, I would say the romance, Marx's romance and, and Jan Siskin's romance, uh, has a very clear limit. It, it, when, I, when I get my cataracts replaced, I, I want an opth- ophthalmic surgeon who does it all day. Yeah. Every day. Right. And through 30 a day. And if I get my you know, coronary bypass fixed, I'd want it from a heart surgeon who, yeah. who was pretty familiar with it. It wasn't right. hacking or messing around writing novels, right. you know? Right, So I think there, you know, there are certain situations where you do need people who, with expertise, which requires constant practice. If you go to a, a symphony, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to hear a violinist who, you know, only practices an hour a day. You yeah. Know? So, so there is that uh, on a technical expertise that we need to build a comp- this complicated society. But, you know, in the U.S., we forget that uh, other places, you know, they live, you know, a, a more uh, balanced life. Um, friends in, my friends in Europe, uh, they take time off. For, for example, in the U.S., there is no, there is no law in the U.S. that requires companies to uh, give people a paid vacation. And the consequence is the whole quarter of our workforce has no paid vacation. They have no rest. And many of them have to have two jobs. And, and uh, they're raising kids and they have no... And they're worried about what happens if they get sick. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But in Europe, there is paid health care. Most countries in Europe have a, have a requirement for like a month's paid vacation, sometimes more. And that, not only that, they require that some of the vacation be taken during the summer months when the schools are closed so there can be a family vacation. When I lived in the Netherlands with two small children, aged one and three, my wife and I were on our bicycles taking the kids. We took them to schools. We took them to daycares. But to do so, we had to travel by bicycle in the cold, uh, often in the cold rain, 20 miles every day. Wow. Um, Wow. That was the total riding, right? So it was about five miles one way to drop them off, and then you'd have to go get them again. in the afternoon and I thought how am I going to survive this Mm. but here's the thing I did survive this Mm. and not only that you know I listen to music or I it's beautiful views and it was all on these bicycle paths that kept me far away from the dangers of Mm. automobiles and all of that stuff when we came back we felt kind of like superheroes for a while Mm-hmm. Like the cold didn't bother me as right, much, right. you know, uh, you know, being out and doing things, you know, the, the things that I now regard again as inconveniences yeah. didn't seem so inconvenient. Right. What I noticed about the kids similarly was that being outside and having the weather and seeing stuff go by and birds and swans and right. all, it was yeah. stimulating. Yeah, sure. It wasn't, it wasn't boring. Right. Right. Um, right. Maybe I'm hopelessly naive, but it seems like it just might be possible to construct a life for most people that wasn't desperately boring all the time. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's what people have in Europe, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, much closer to a, a reasonable life. And then this, if they can do it, we certainly can. So I was born in 1940. My parents met during the 1930s, during the Depression. They worked on the uh, Federal Writers Project, which was a federally funded project by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to try to bring people out of the Depression. And he was sort of trying to, uh, if you'll pardon me, build back better. (laughs) Um, And it it was very effective, really, in in many ways. But at that time, many people uh, in the U.S. were... uh, working people were members of the Communist Party. And I know that today everybody associates the, the Communist Party in their mind with the Soviet Union and uh, where, or Russia uh, was in the Soviet Union. 
And it's true that that was sort of a model. The idea was that they, they had made a revolution in 1917 uh, to, uh, to create socialism, communism. And uh, it was sort of a model, well, we, we could do that here, you know, and so on. And that was one side of it that has been uh, publicized and attacked by the, by the right uh, to, uh, to criticize it. But um, many, most of the communists that my, were my parents' companion, friends and companions and who I grew up with, their main concern was to improve uh, social conditions uh, in the U.S. And so they were uh, organizing uh, labor unions. And in the 1930s, the uh, big uh, car manufacturers, Ford and Chrysler and so on, uh, the, I mean, the working conditions were terrible. They were overworked, they were underpaid, they were dangerous. And this is true in the, in the coal mines and the steel mills and, and so on. And the longshoremen workers, uh, longshoremen then were unloading. They weren't these containers that were unloaded by derricks. They, they were Longshoremen went into a boat, boat in San Francisco and carried out sack by sack and whatnot uh, the, the goods. And so... There was a big resistance among the the uh, the owners of uh, industry to workers' rights. There were long hours. There were no vacations. There was no sick pay. You know, all kinds Kids of things. Kids were working. Yeah, child labor, and so uh, unions began to uh, organize to uh, fight this. And in the thirties, so the thirties, there was a group of unions who were doing the the hardest, most difficult jobs. The the assembly lines, the uh, steel mills, the uh, longshoremen, and so on, they were organized to a large degree by communist members of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party at that stage was a political party. It ran candidates for public office. Some of them were elected to Congress and city councils all over the country. They ran candidates for president in the 19, late 30s. Uh, they might have gotten 100,000 votes or something like that for president. Not, not enough to become president, but it was a significant political movement. And my parents were uh, members, and they remained members up into the, uh, into the early 1950s. And finally, they uh, left the party. Many people left the party in, in 1956 when the Soviet Union <laughs> uh, marched into Hungary with troops and... Uh, put down the Hungarian democracy. And then later that year, the premier of, of the Soviet Union, um, Khrushchev, acknowledged that in, in public that Stalin had really had been really a bad guy. I mean, a really terrible guy. And it killed, you know... Tens of ten, millions. Tens of millions. Of, well, millions, maybe. Uh, the, the, the World War II cost the Soviet Union uh, about 20 million people, I think. And that wasn't just Stalin, that was, yeah. that was Hitler, you know. Yeah. Uh, but my parents and their friends were preoccupied with social justice, uh, 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 including uh, a major effort of the Communist Party was to stop lynching. Black people were just pretty casually lynched, you know, hundreds of people, uh, men, black men a year in the South were lynched. In the North, uh, black people you know, couldn't find places to live. They worked in jobs that were restricted to menial sort of labor, nothing above you know, the sleeping carporter or the street cleaner or stuff like that, and no skilled jobs. They were excluded. So my parents were concerned with improving unions and improving uh, the living conditions for uh, African Americans. So that was uh, the family I was born into, my sister and I. My sister is four years younger. And uh, so we were raised in this tradition of social uh, concern. And my mother used to uh, quote to me, remind, the, the idea was that we got from Marx was and remains uh, the idea, not, not simply do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not don't do unto others what you would not have done unto you. It's not just the golden rule. It's, it's really a, a one moral notch, I think, about that, which is from each according to his ability, what, what you have 
naturally uh, the ability to do, both from what's within you and to what you've been given and been able to make for it, you should give to those who have need and perhaps less ability. And I think that uh, I'm very satisfied with that. I, I, and that was 1848. I find that a pretty satisfying uh, precept to to live by. Yeah. Know? And people say, well, "Why are you doing that? Why are you bothering with that?" You, I said, "Well, I, I can. I do it because I, I can. I'm able. You know. Yeah. And uh, I've been lucky to have some ability and some support. So I try to do it. Well, um, I thank you for the work that you're doing, for the work you've done, and for talking to me. Right now. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a very nice week for me. Thanks. And I am young enough to understand and gradually forget. So there's a lot going on here. First I wanna I wanna talk a little bit more about dopamine. I don't know, have you have you heard of this? This is kind of a trend where people will go on dopamine fasts. That's what they call it at least. Yeah. This is the thing where you like don't look at your phone yeah. for two weeks or whatever yeah it's not so much of a fast they're just like resensitizing their brains to all of the excess stimuli that we have now that we have this fun box that gives us pleasure all the time (laughs) yeah this fun box that's not actually that fun because the thing that's about the phone is that the bursts of dopamine are very very tiny right and one of the weird things about dopamine and reinforcement what Peter's talking about braids together with the science of behavior, mm-hmm. behaviorism, and reinforcers. The reinforcer is the behavioral version of dopamine, mm-hmm. right? It's anything that makes a certain behavior increase. Right. And one of the things that we've learned about reinforcers, and this is tied to your dopamine response, is that smaller ones get you more addicted. Oh, okay. So Interesting. So one of the most insidious things that's Uh, ever happened to the human race is the like button. Yeah. Because you get a little (laughs) boing, boing, boing. And the thing is about that is that it's relatively unpredictable. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's really tiny. So it's not enough to nourish you. Right. right? But it's enough to give you a sense that nourishment might be attainable if you keep following it. So this is, explains my entire relationship with TikTok. All of us, right? Ugh. And TikTok is the worst yeah. because it's actually better because it's kind of funny. You see yeah, the no, there's a lot you flying actually through get the air or yeah. whatever and, and attacking the yarn ball. And you're like, I want another one of those. Yeah, it yeah. becomes the yarn ball and I'm the cat. Yeah. So um, there are studies of dopamine in mice where you have. You give them the mouse the ability to cause a dopamine release in their brain by mm-hmm. pressing a lever. Mm. And that mouse will press the lever until they die. They will not do anything other than press the lever anymore. That's kind of sad. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that way with my phone sometimes. And, uh, you know, I realize that I've been overstimulated at the point where I open and close an application twice and then I go to a different thing and then I'm like no and then I like look around me and I think about other things that I could be doing and the answer is no 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 none of those things are going to get me what I need and then I'm like oh I've completely desensitized myself to to this response at least for right now that's what it feels like at least well you know one of the the most successful forms of psychotherapeutic intervention for feeling down is something called behavioral activation. And it works like this. You predict that going out into the world is not going to be very fun and you're not going to get your dopamine pulse. Um, So you just stay at home. It turns out that we're bad at predicting those things. <laughs> so if you get people to just go out right a- anyway, you tend to have unpredictable positive sure. surprises. Right, right. And um, it's the unpredictability part that makes us kind of go, well, that sounds like a lot of work. 
And one of the other yeah. things that we're designed for, as Peter explained, is efficiency. And so if you don't think that you're going to get the thing, then the wisest course of action is to not do the work. Yeah. Right? Right. But we've structured our lives somehow such that we've been able to persuade ourselves that we're not going to get the thing that we will, in fact, get if we go out. Right. So we wound up just staying home, trying to conserve energy that we don't need to conserve. That's really interesting. When we're talking about allostasis and the predictive shifts in our body, we're not talking about things that we predict mentally. No. But it seems like this kind of translates to that. Your expectations are what's going to get you in trouble whether good or bad, you know, like if I go somewhere thinking, oh, this is going to be the greatest, you know, it's never as good as as what I thought it was going to be. What you were just suggesting, if I'm like, oh, I don't really want to go. And then I do go somewhere. Yeah, I, I do find that there's like a, a, a surprise happiness that comes through that. Yeah. Um, one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia in the psychology department, this guy named Tim Wilson, has done some work showing that we are particularly bad at predicting how we're going to feel emotionally yeah. about a thing. Oh, man. We're terrible at that. Yeah. And this has real implications for all the stuff that Peter's talking about. Right. And for our you know, behavioral activation, our, our psychological health. The question that I ask early on in part two of the interview about things being maybe too comfortable. Yeah. You know, and, and we sort of forget. We, we, we've removed the weather from our lives. On the one hand, that can, in fact, make us more comfortable. But on the other hand, it removes the frequency of these positive surprises from our lives. And what we had in the old days, you might say, in really old days, was a lot of little like, oh, look, a berry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that was going to be there. That's awesome. Right. And then you sort of wander around. Yeah. All of this has made me think a lot about like the back to the land movement where I most recently lived in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. There was a big back to the land movement there in the 1970s where a bunch of people from cities all over the country said, I'm done. I'm done living here and working whatever desk job I'm working. I am going to go subsistence farm and just kind of live off the land as much as possible. And and I think that's happening a little bit now again, especially in the wake of the pandemic. Yeah, A lot of people have said, you know what? I am entirely too stressed out for the possibility that my mortality is just like right around the corner. And I don't want to be around tons and tons of people anymore. I don't want to be just in society. I want to go be more in touch with nature. Yeah. You know, not everyone can do that. But I think what is interesting of that type of living or the skill set that you have to develop in that, yeah, it's a lot of hard work, you know, like, and a lot of older people are like, why would you ever want to, you know, like you could do anything anywhere. Why would you go back to the old ways of, of farming for your food? But I think there's a big difference between work that gets you something that you can survive on and it makes you feel good. And, you know, there's dopamine created just by succeeding physically at doing something like that. That is a lot harder to attain when you're sitting in AC thinking about whether what you're doing is what you want to be doing. Yeah. Peter calls the fruits of your labor. Right. Um simple satisfactions. And this also is is no surprise associated with dopaminergic responses because when you create something that you like, that works, you want to learn that it worked. Yeah. And so dopamine, again, is, is sort of how you learn. And by the way, one of the people who has done a sort of back to the land movement uh, strategy is Peter Sterling. Right. <laughs> he moved to Panama. He bought a farm. Initially, that farm had limited electricity and no access to the internet. It's changed a little bit since then. But the guy gets up in the morning and walks around his farm, collects eggs, checks the coffee plants, interacts with people who are 
working in adjacent farms, neighbors that are that are doing, you know, labor. And yeah. then he goes home and writes books and articles about neuroscience. Yeah. It's it's the Marxist ideal. Totally. As he describes. Yeah. I think it's very clear to me how a study of allostasis and the fact that our our body is trying to take care of us in environments, no matter how terrible those environments are. In some ways, it sounds like we've severely underestimated the kind of impact of long-term stress. <laughs> yeah, many of us. And one of the most interesting things about the interview for me is our brief discussion about scaling. Yeah. You know, we have 8 billion people now. Mm -hmm. You know, when I lived in the Netherlands, on the one hand, there was this way in which it was less convenient because I had to rely on bicycles in the cold rain with my one-year-old and three-year-old. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, every single day, getting to work, getting the kids to preschool and back home was a kind of little adventure. Right. Um, it wasn't, you know, an Indiana Jones movie, but it was like, look, a, you know, a stork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the level yeah. of simple satisfaction that we're shooting for. Right, right. This definitely seems like important stuff for people who are interested in social justice and understanding not just the the outright obvious ways in which people of different backgrounds or identities are treated differently, but how that kind of has this trickle-down effect on their whole bodies. Oh, my God. So the thing that you mentioned there that's so important, this is one of the things I love about these interviews with Peter Sterling, the two parts. It reveals how important science is and can be for the social justice values that we hold dear. We want to reduce suffering, increase the general frequency of smiles. We want to make people feel more secure. Science is going to help us do that if we're good, probative scientists. <laughs> Responsible yeah. science, yeah. Yeah. Okay, next week we have a very special episode of Circle of Willis. Why do we call our show The Circle of Willis? It's a Halloween special, which is now uh, kind of a tradition because the first Halloween special was about my heart attack. And this one is about Thomas Willis. It's named after him. It's named him. after him. And our show is named after that circle, the circle of Willis in your brain. Exactly. So if you want to learn a little bit more about why our show is called Circle of Willis and about Thomas Willis himself and hear some spooky medical stories from the 1600s. He revived a dead woman. Look out for that in two weeks. Folks, the music of Circle of Willis is written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information on how to purchase their music, go to our website, circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. <laughs>